0: Usually I put something soft. Have something in. soft, yeah. I've got but I forgot. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's, that's great. Not, hope a, there's a fellow fellow podcaster knows exactly what I need. <laughs> I, know, I know the challenges of of trying to record, right? And yeah, yeah. We had a
1: we had a guest who was constantly like, I was like "Dude, yeah, please yeah, yeah. Was don't do that." <laughs> <day.">
0: <laughs> Greetings, explorers. It's Mike Wong. And today on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, we welcome fellow podcaster, exoplaneteer, and astrobiologist, Dr. Andrew Rushby, to the show. As you can already tell, Andrew and I have many things in common. He co-hosts and co-produces a podcast known as Exocast, which to my mind is the premier exoplanet podcast. Andrew also studies exoplanets himself as a postdoc at the University of California, Irvine. And he is a budding astrobiologist interested in answering the question, are we alone in the universe? Now, as similar as we are, Andrew and I are about to have one more commonality, as Andrew is currently binging all of Star Trek The Next Generation and becoming quite the Trekkie. During his recent visit to the University of Washington, Andrew gave a fantastic lecture on his latest research. And afterwards, I cornered him to tell me about his impressions of TNG and how his scientific investigations are furthering our knowledge of those strange new worlds out there, their potential for habitable climates, and
1: perhaps life. Mike, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here.
0: Yeah, I think we should start with your podcast,
1: ExoCast, and the ExoCup, which you'll be hosting in November. Indeed, this coming November. Uh, we do have a, well, thank you firstly for mentioning my podcast and your podcast. That's very kind. <laughs> um, yeah, ExoCast has been going going for a little while now, approaching four years somehow. Wow. Um, and we have been running the ExoCup for the last three of them. Um, which started off as a if your listeners aren't familiar with it it was a, a it was supposed to be a really fun fun poll on Twitter just to get people engaged in exoplanets, and we realised once we started running it that people are incredibly passionate about the planets they've discovered particularly, so we would have folks signing up for Twitter specifically to come and tell us about why their planet should be the one that's chosen, which was unexpected but fantastic, so we were getting that real engagement, not just between folks who are on Twitter just because they're interested in learning about science, but actually getting the scientists themselves to come up and say, this is why this is a fantastic planet and I can tell you about the night I discovered it and getting that real personal insight um, and we realized that we needed to do a better job of our seeding the next year because of the emotional toil that we were causing a lot of folks <laughs> so this um, is a competition yes. it's a bracket style indeed yeah so we've this year we've uh, we've got a series of, of of pools our most recent show will be coming out soon hopefully and we go into a lot of detail about how we chose these planets because of some of the feedback, let's put it, we had from the last couple of years. Um, So yeah, we have a series of pools uh, of planets, and then we randomly distributed our seeded planets into those pools uh, using a random algorithm that we did live on the show to show our reaction to the various uh, pools. And there's one pool that's going to be very difficult, or one group and that's going to be very difficult to decide, all of the planets I want them to go through. (laughs) Um, So our first vote is going to be a series, uh, there's going to be four planets, and we need to choose the top two to go through to the quarter final and then we'll have a semi-final and then a final uh, and then we have a series of, of kind of trading card factoids that we, we release when we release the Twitter poll. Because unless you're a, a, a hardcore awesome scientist like us, you don't necessarily know uh, Kepler-22b over Kepler-10b and what the difference might be. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I've seen this Twitter poll, um,
0: you know, really take flight on the internet and everybody is engaging with it. But I, I've not been studying exoplanets for very long. This is coming up on the end of my first year of actually being an exoplanetary scientist. And prior to that... All of the exoplanets were just a blur to me because they're some name, I guess, the catalog or the discovery mission, and then a number. And often it's a very long number. Um, So how do you...
1: Keep them straight. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic question. I think this is a problem we're facing in exoplanet science at the moment. So the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, did try and have a competition to name some of the more popular planets. However, I think there was a lot of pushback on that because we realized that we have 4,000 planets as it stands and we're probably going to get a whole bunch more from TESS and we have to come up for a name for each one it's probably going to be kind of tricky. Um, however, that doesn't help when you have a planet called, you know, HD 20945b, and you want to consider that between HD 128406b. Uh, what is a normal human being who has a normal job that isn't studying these enigmatic planets going to know? Uh, and we, we didn't think it was fair to, to present them like that, so we include our little fact card, which has, you know, its mass, its size, a little factoid about it. And we try to include, firstly, I don't want to give too much away about our sampling, uh, it's not a secret, but... Uh, But we went to ADS and Hugh wrote a little script for us that determined the most popular planets from ADS, which is the astrophysics data system, basically where we store all of our papers for the year. Uh, So we wanted to say, okay, these are the 32 popular planets for the year. We actually chose, I believe, 24 of the most popular ones from there. Then we had some feedback on Twitter from high school students who really wanted certain planets to be in. And we couldn't say no to that. And we also wanted to make sure that we had a good distribution or good representation from all the different types of exoplanet detection Mm. methods that are out there. So there's a whole number of ways that you can find exoplanets and those methods have their proponents and they have their detractors and there's some folks who want to make sure that the planets that were detected with a particular method, whether that's direct imaging or radial velocity or transit photometry, all these different techniques, they all want to make sure that they have their representation in ExoCup. And this was actually the, the, the thing that we ran into in our first year, is that folks from the direct imaging community, so those folks who have the capability to take an image of, you know, the actual light being reflected from the star, these are generally planets that are very distant from the star and that you know, maybe very young, so they're still very hot, and those, they're fantastic worlds that are teaching us a lot about planet formation, but we didn't really have any of them in our, in our competition. And we thought we need to do a better job of representing all of our all of our various detection technique communities Uh, so we did our absolute best to make sure that we had a good representation from all of those planets so 32 worlds made it into the pool uh, and they're going to fight it off against each other for everyone's favorite planets at the end of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, um, that's really thoughtful of you, to make sure that you're representing all of the different scientific we communities. We and yeah. I think it's brilliant to have these sort of trading card designs that you know show all the characteristics of the planets in a very brief and informative yeah. way. And I guess the next step is to try to create some kind of card game to go along with this. Indeed,
1: yeah. <laughs> and actually, the, the AAAS, the American... Uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, Mm -hmm. that's the one. Uh, They actually approached us about trying to turn this into a card game of sorts. Maybe we should try and pick that up again uh, to try and see what we can do with these. Because we're building up quite a deck now, Uh including our 2017 cards and our 2018 cards. And now we have a few new planets coming through this year. Uh, So our previous defending champion, uh, defending champions, I guess, uh, Kepler-10b and Kelt-9b will be in this year's competition. Uh, so and Kelt-9b obviously defending its crown from last year. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how well that does. Um, it's got a lot of competition this year from very popular planets like the Trappist system, which you may be familiar with or your listeners may be familiar with, is that very small star that has those seven Earth-sized planets in its orbit. So we have one planet from there represented in our in our group. But we also have 51 Peg b which has been in the news recently because the discovery of that planet in 1995 resulted in the Nobel Prize being awarded to Michel Mayor and Didier Queloz this that's year. Right, yeah. So that is now in our in our polling, like how could you compete with a planet that's, that's <laughs> won a Nobel Prize basically? Yeah. Um, but we'll see, maybe that's not the most important thing. For most people. <laughs> yeah, what does the winning planet get I was worried you going to ask me that. <laughs> just, just the knowledge that it is the most popular planet uh, from a bunch of bipedal apes on a planet very, very far away. I think that should be enough. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So, Andrew, you've been doing this watch through
1: of Star Trek The Next Generation have indeed when did you start Uh, well I guess technically I started in the early 90s Uh, like many folks my my dad actually introduced me to to the Star Trek universe and maybe I was a little young to appreciate it but I feel like I've been a little bit of a a late adopter to Star Trek and uh, we met recently when I was just starting my TNG watch through And I've been hooked. I've been hooked ever since. So I believe uh, I'm up to season five, episode 23 now. So in a couple of months, I've been getting through it and, and actually really enjoying it. It's a fantastic series. As a standalone series, even if it wasn't a Star Trek series, I've been really, really enjoying it. That's excellent. Yeah. It's just amazing to me that in
0: 2019, over 30 years since the series premiered, people will still go back, start at the very beginning and sort of binge watch it all the way through. And I think that just speaks to the longevity
1: and exactly. the, the strength of the storytelling yeah. in Star Trek. In a way, I look forward to going back for my second watch through <laughs> <laughs> when I'm finished, right? <laughs> Often yeah. you, you notice different things. You notice uh, you know an overarching story or maybe a, a transition in how the characters are developing that maybe you don't see the first time around. And I know when we spoke originally, I was like, oh, I think this and this. And I had these very strong opinions about the characters. But those have, those have kind of shifted
0: over mm-hmm. time. Yeah, I think the mode of storytelling in Star Trek has shifted over the years. Those overarching themes and story arcs that we might ascribe you know, retrospectively now to a series like TNG may not have been planned out all the way mm. at the very beginning because of the, the episodic nature, sure. but with the more serialized TV series, starting with Star Trek Deep Space Nine and then definitely occurring in the most recent series, Star Trek Discovery, those story arcs, I think, are a little bit more thought through at mm-hmm. the very beginning where the, the
1: trajectories are going to go. So, yeah, it's very interesting. And I guess um, that's a capturing the, the changing media landscape as well, how we consume those episodes mm-hmm. now as a binge, exactly. you know, as opposed to uh, something you might look forward to every week, which maybe we're missing out on. Maybe we don't have that time in between episodes to just stop and think about them a little bit.
0: You know, the most recent series, Star Trek Discovery, When it is shown for the first time, it is split up week by week, Mm -hmm. you know, episode by episode. And I I think that that's such a great and valuable thing. I mean, they could have just all released it at once, and then everybody would binge it and not get any sleep for a couple nights. (laughs) Um, But I like that aspect of they will time it and release it week by week because part of my childhood was going to school and talking about last night's episode with all of my friends. And to be able to replicate that now... As a postdoc, <laughs> you know, my friends are scattered all about the place, but being able to text them and interact with them on Twitter about yeah. the, the most recent episode and then anticipating what next week's episode will bring is part of that experience of
1: Star Trek. And I make. assume that's what the producers would probably have considered in in taking this approach. There's mm-hmm. probably pressure to, to get it out as a series, you know, as a bingeable series as there often is these days, but I'm pleased they didn't. That's great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So as you've been going through TNG, what have been some of the most memorable moments for you as a scientist and as somebody who also just
1: appreciates science fiction and art and storytelling? That's a great question, Mike. Well, I I think my initial thoughts were... I really appreciated some of the philosophically themed ethical episodes, and I think the first one we spoke about was um, the, the Measure of a Man, which is about Data's trial as to whether he's a, you know, count as a human being, uh, as an AI, uh, or as a, sorry, as an android, uh, whether he would, you know, be considered as a human being, and the, and the trial that he underwent, and the ethical and legal arguments for it, and there was a number of things that I found heartening in there, well, for a start, Captain Picard, oh my gosh, what a guy, <laughs> um, and to the fact that even in this imagined universe 400 years from now, we're still grappling with some of these legal and ethical issues. And there can be this um, temptation, I guess, to think of By that stage, surely we would have figured this all out. You know, some of the problems that we're facing now in our society, you know, we'd hope would be figured out by then, but there will always be these ethical and and philosophical grey areas that we need to address. I know this is, you know, obviously a hypothetical 400 years from now, but I could envisage that these legal problems will continue to happen. So that was one of the episodes I really enjoyed, considering, you know, the legal implications. Just a quick aside,
0: on a personal note, I have this tradition of sharing a Star Trek episode with my friends on my birthday. This year, I wanted to choose something with relevance to the upcoming Star Trek Picard series. And after toiling over many Borg-themed episodes, I actually settled on something very different the measure of a man, mainly thanks to the wonderful conversations that I'd been having with Andrew over the philosophical nature of that episode. I also think that, aside from the Borg, another major plot line of the new Picard show will be Jean-Luc's relationship with his long-departed friend, Data, whom he seems to be envisioning in his dreams. Perhaps, the early stages of his irumatic syndrome? Anyway,
1: back to Andrew. And also some of the Episode that deal with the really hard-hitting stuff, like when when Lieutenant Worf was uh, disabled and he wanted to commit suicide because he didn't see, you know, as part of his culture, he was now dead, basically. And seeing the crew's response to that, the different crew's response to that, um, you know, where, where the captain was understanding, uh, given, you know, his knowledge of the Klingon culture, in that he is a warrior, now he is disabled, therefore he is, he is no longer a, a, an existing in their society. I found that that fascinating, uh, to appreciate that cultural difference in that way, despite the heavy implications of that decision, to respect it. So those are some of the themes that have stuck with me, I yeah. guess, in that respect. As a scientist, I think the science is pretty great for most of it. I mean, you have to expect that this is a, a TV series, and you can't expect, you know, to have graduate-level science on there, especially in the 90s, when they didn't know that much about exoplanets as we do. However, the things that I guess I notice, as my research is generally involved in planetary habitability, which is a, a very catch-all term for the ability of any planet to support life, and, I mean, you can you can pull apart that phrase in itself and probably result in multiple postdocs' worth of information
0: there. <laughs> well, um, or, or, or many papers, and I know you've been involved in trying to help the
1: community define habitability through your writing and scholarly work, yeah. <laughs> Um, I've tried. Uh, yeah, there's <laughs> a, There is a review paper called Habitability, a review, uh, which came out a few years ago as open source in astrobiology. If that's it. Wonderful. That I love, love open source papers. So yes. It has to be, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I don't think, you know, we're, we're publicly funded. Well, I'm a publicly funded scientist, and I, I just think it has to be done. You know, we have to be more open source. And fortunately, the, the publishing model is moving towards that. But that's a topic maybe for another episode. <laughs> we, could, we could fill a lot of episodes with that. So, I mean, I guess every episode in TNG or in Star Trek has some element of our planetary habitability if we're you know deciding to send an away team down to a planet that's considered m class and then interestingly we land on this planet and it has incredible lightning storms and there's not a sign of life and not a sign of water on it and knowing what i know about the oxygen cycle i'm very surprised <laughs> <laughs> that these planets are able to just coincidentally support 21 percent oxygen or 20 percent oxygen enough for the away team to survive comfortably so i guess there is some some discrepancy there, but I I certainly can't. It it doesn't detract in any way from my enjoyment of the show. And Mm -hmm. who am I to say that there isn't an oxygen-rich planet out there that has an oxygen-rich atmosphere from abiotic processes that we haven't maybe discovered yet? Maybe I'm the one who's being too (laughs) close-minded in my approach. (laughs) So
0: as you said, your research investigates the habitability of other planets and
1: especially the climates of those worlds. What tools do you use to do this? We use primarily climate models. So these are computer simulations of varying complexity, let's put it that way. So we have some quite simple models, I say simple in the sense that they handle maybe just a few elements of the planet system, that is the kind of connected ocean, atmosphere, land, interior of the planet. Um, So those are maybe quite simple. These are something that maybe you could run on a desktop computer and can maybe be done in an afternoon all the way from that kind of model all the way up to more complex 3D global circulation models, which are the same kind of tools that are used for weather prediction or to study anthropogenic climate change, for example. So we have a suite of of different models available to us, um, but not all of them are are good for for the purpose of, of exoplanets. There are some limitations in our understanding and our gaps in our knowledge. And sometimes going with a more simple, in air quotes, model that maybe parameterizes or makes some assumption about what the planet is like based on maybe the Earth or based on maybe another planet in our solar system, I think is defensible. If you want to have a very complicated model, it requires you to know generally a lot about the system that you're trying to put into that model. And we don't know enough about them in many cases. So uh, a recent paper that I published actually came out on the day of recording here Mm -hmm. um, is using a very simple one-dimensional model that's one-dimensional in latitude space. So we're just looking at how the planet's energy balance, i.e. how much energy is coming in from the star compared to how much energy is being reflected away, how that might change with different star types and with different land fraction. And for that, we used a very simple model that we ran 4,000 times in over two days. So much more simple to get running. Whereas the much more complex model that we're trying to use to generate maybe a snapshot of the planet at a given time could take the same amount of time just to do one time step. So there are different tools available for different parts of the work. And I guess I, I err towards the more simple model. Why not? Hey, you know, no need to make it more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is an
0: example of the power of computers Absolutely. aiding science these yes. days. And as you said, you're taking the types of models that have been developed and validated against our own climate here on earth mm-hmm. and, like you said, are used to predict the changes in our climate going into the future for trying to understand the impact of human society on our world. And you are in essence trying to predict what the climate of a completely different planet would be around a completely different kind exactly.
1: of star. Yes. So okay. not only do we have to deal with a different type of planet, maybe with a different atmosphere, but also with a different star. And for most folks, they might think, OK, you know, why, why is that a big deal? Maybe you know, the light looks a little different if you're around a much smaller star. But we discovered that because stars that are smaller than the sun give off their, their peak amount of energy in slightly longer, redder wavelengths than the sun does, this has a very interesting interaction with the surface we now can tell that the ice reflectivity, i.e. how much energy is being reflected away from the ice on those planets that are around much smaller stars, is very different to that around a star like the Sun. So when we see ice here on Earth, we we look at it, it's very bright, it has a very high albedo, which is the amount of light that's being reflected, whereas that same material around uh, an M-dwarf, i.e. a red star, uh, would look very different. It would actually be quite dark and it would actually absorb a lot more energy. So we've noticed that there are effects from the differing type of planet maybe it's slightly smaller maybe a slightly bigger planet maybe a different climate but also the star is a very complicating factor and i'm sure there's a lot of exoplanet astronomers who are probably saying well we always knew that <laughs> we always knew how difficult the star was when we we're trying to look for planets um, trying to detect an exoplanet is very difficult because the star tends to have its own cycle of variability and now we're realizing that even when we're trying to understand the climate of the planet that the star or the differences in the star is also going to be very important So you mentioned ice. Mm.
0: Can you walk me through the major climate feedback that ice participates in first here for Earth, and then how that changes when you essentially
1: change the light bulb? Yeah, um, that's a great analogy. (laughs) Yeah. Make the star redder. Exactly. Okay, so the, um, the, the primary feedback that ice is involved with here on the Earth is called the ice albedo feedback. So I mentioned albedo before. Albedo is just the measure of the fractional measure of how much energy is being reflected away from the surface. So if you have an albedo of 0.3, what that's saying is 30% of the light that's hitting that is then being reflected away. 70% of it is being absorbed. Now on the Earth, when we, as I said, when we look at ice, it seems to be very bright. It seems to have a very high albedo, maybe like 0.7 or 0.8. So 70% of the light or 80% of the light being reflected away. Now that same material, that same ice, if you were to put that on an M-dwarf planet, would actually have a different albedo. It would be the same material, but because we've changed the light bulb and the energy that's coming in, um, obviously the amount of light that's reflected away is going to be dependent on how much energy is coming in, but not just the amount of energy, but also where that energy is distributed in wavelength. Mm. So this is it's shifted towards the red part of the spectrum. So on Earth, we're used to looking at stuff in the visible part of the spectrum between you know maybe 0.3 and 0.7 microns. But for an M dwarf, the peak is much more uh, closely towards the 1 micron to 1.5 micron region. And in that area, ice is actually quite absorptive. So we have what might appear to our eyes, if we could see infrared, as to be quite dark ice on the surface.
0: Right. Oh. Okay, so let me see if I can translate sure. this. So yeah, I we're that. talking about
1: wavelengths in
0: microns. Sorry, for I was getting a little bit, are... a little bit <laughs> oh, technical there. I apologize. It's, it's difficult to explain that without getting to microns. <laughs> so... Um, um, when we look at ice here on Earth, it appears bright, just blinding white. Exactly. And that's because it's reflecting light across the visible wavelengths. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and around an M dwarf, where its stellar spectrum is skewed towards the redder colors all the way into what we would call the infrared, exactly. that same ice would not be as reflective in the infrared exactly wavelengths. That. Yeah. Okay, and so yes. that's why you said when you switch your eye... Okay, so we, we switch the light bulb, but yes. we're going to be able to switch our eyes. Yes. With maybe like Geordie LaForge. If we all advisors, exactly. if
1: we all advisors, We would be able to see that wavelength mm-hmm. dependence as, as it's known. Right. You're totally right. That's a great way of, of, of putting it, Mike. So um, the ice is the same ice. It's water ice that, that we studied anyway. But what we noticed was the interaction between the water ice and the star was the thing that was important, was the thing that changed the water ice's reflectivity. Now on Earth, the ice albedo feedback is quite a powerful system. So let's imagine we have ice forming at the poles. We have some, just like we do now, let's say there's a global cooling event, we have some ice forming at the poles. That ice has a very high albedo, high reflectivity, it looks very bright, and therefore it reflects energy away, which cools the planet slightly. And by doing so, that results in more ice forming, ice likes likes cold cold temperatures, so then we have more ice forming. That ice has a very high albedo, of course it reflects away a little bit more energy, which then cools the planet just a little bit more, more ice formation, and eventually you get to a point, somewhere around like 30 degrees from the equator, where it's known as a tipping point where there's so much energy being reflected away from the planet because of the ice surface that the ice runs away, as it's known. There's, there's no control over that system anymore. It goes all the way to the equator and then we end up in what's known as a snowball Earth where ice covers the entire planet from the pole to the equator. And we think this may be happened on Earth a couple of times. We have some geological evidence for it. Now, this actually operates very differently on the planets around those much smaller stars for the reason that we've already said is that ice looks different so let's have that same experiment running again we have some global cooling event and there's ice forming at the pole of a planet around an m dwarf star very very small very red now that ice is actually quite absorptive to the energy that's coming from the star which means instead of reflecting energy away and cooling the planet actually absorbs a little of that energy and warms the planet thereby melting the ice and revealing the land surface now that land because it has a different property as well actually looks quite reflective to the star Mm. so it's kind of the opposite on an m dwarf we see the land is quite dark you know if you think about soil or you think about you know even dune sand it's quite a dark material because we're seeing it in the visible if you're changing the light bulb and you're going around a smaller star that land is actually quite reflective now So it's the opposite way around. We have this absorptive ice, weirdly, and this reflective land. So you actually have a stabilizing system, where instead of running away all the way to the equator, you now have the system where the ice forms and it warms the planets, the ice melts. And reveals this reflective surface, which cools the planet, huh. which results in the ice forming, uh, which then warms the planet slightly, which then reveals the land surface, which then cools the planet. So we have this like, kind of seesaw of, of stability at very high land fractions on these planets, or so we discovered in our recent paper. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. we weren't expecting to find that. We this, thought it was kind of weird. This positive feedback here on Earth, something that would just run
0: away and cause the Earth to go either into a snowball state, as you called it, or in the opposite direction,
1: it would just erase the entire ice caps. So Yeah, that's possible as well. I should have said it doesn't always go in, in, just all the way to the equator. There are other feedbacks that prevent it from going down that far.
0: On an M dwarf, or on a planet that's orbiting an M dwarf, this same physics creates a, a different kind of feedback, exactly. a, a negative feedback yeah. that sort of that balance yeah. and keeps that planet habitable then. or, or What We've... is the main conclusion with respect to planetary habitability from this type of work?
1: Well, as I mentioned, this is quite a simple model, and we weren't really able to do the atmosphere as well as we would have liked. Um, but I guess the takeaway was that we could definitely say that these planets have a more stable climate, And if you're someone who who works in climate science, you might be familiar with that term. Um, We often look at how much could you perturb the system uh, and what would its response be? And on Earth, that's kind of a sensitivity analysis. Let's, Let's say we put double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. What would be the response of the climate system? We would maybe get three degrees of Kelvin of warming. Now, that response is actually, uh, it's kind of very stable on those M dwarf planets. So we could say you could have a large perturbation, you could have a large disturbance of that system. You could pump some CO2 into the atmosphere. There could be an impact or a global ice storm or something that affects the climate system. It's much more stable against those perturbations, those disruptions, than a planet around a much larger, much brighter star. So again, it's it's pointing towards the fact that these planets around much smaller stars actually might be really good candidates mm. for looking for life because their their climates could be a little bit more stable, perhaps, than uh, around a larger star. That's awesome. We thought so. <laughs> and our group is, is kind of focused on studying these small stars and the habitability of planets in their orbits. So I'll admit I'm kind of biased. Uh, I think these, these small stars are fascinating for a number of reasons. And they have, they have a number of things that make them excellent for supporting planets that might have life and a number of reasons that make them not so good. And we think this is just another, another tick in the prose box, perhaps, about a very stable climate um, and maybe a stabilizing, as you said, a negative feedback, which is exactly what that is.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to say about this paper or your
1: research? Wow, I think I think that was a pretty good summary, actually. Like, yeah, okay. Summed it up. Thank you. Given me a chance to waffle about my research. <laughs> no, it was well presented for the second time today. Thank you.
0: <laughs> you think I'd get better the more times I do it. Right? <laughs> um, so I just have one last question for you then. So we've discovered all of these crazy kinds of exoplanets out there. We have over 4,000 as you said in your talk here yeah. at the University of Washington today. That's just so many different planets out there that are just waiting to be characterized and they really are someone needs to do it (laughs) and you've got this exo cup where we will be voting and and listeners you can log on to twitter and vote yourself on yeah uh, who should win the exo cup and i asked before what does the planet get if it wins exo cup now let's pretend let's do a thought experiment Mm -hmm. that the winning planet of exo cup would get featured in an episode of an upcoming star trek series which planet would you be voting
1: for in ExoCup? Wow, what a fantastic okay. question. Mike. Um. Okay, we have the Trappist system featured in the ExoCup. Now, there are actually seven planets in that system, and I think it's, it's a fascinating system because of that. We're using uh, Trappist-1b, which is the closest in planet. And actually, I was really surprised to find that that was more popular uh, in terms of the literature and in terms of citations than the, the maybe the more habitable worlds, which are uh, TRAPPIST-1D and TRAPPIST-1E, and maybe TRAPPIST-1F, depending on who you ask. <laughs> so I'm going to say uh, the TRAPPIST system, which is represented here by TRAPPIST-1B. And the reason for that is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of this system, beyond the fact that there's seven Earth-sized planets in it, is their proximity to each other. And there was um, some studies investigating the transport of material between those, those various planets. So we think that if life evolved on any of them, it's quite likely that by now, given the age of the system, that it would have distributed itself around the planetary system, not just the planet itself. Because it may only take a thousand years for material to travel between these different worlds. So um, I think having an understanding about the differences between those worlds uh, and maybe looking into what's known as, uh, I guess, panspermia is, mm. is one of these ideas about life coming from elsewhere and then being seeded on the planet somehow. This would be an, a fantastic case study for that. How easy is it to move material and maybe life between these, these, these star systems? And I could see an away team landing on several of these different planets to figure out, one, maybe where the life came from in that system, uh, and then how it was spread out over the system naturally, maybe by impactors and, and comets and the like.
0: Right. I was going to ask, like, when you were talking about this, you mean life being
1: transported through, uh, I suppose, non-technological yes, means. Yes, I should have stressed that. This is not, these are not uh, intelligent organisms that are getting in a spaceship and going to another planet. These are, you know, say we have an impact event on, on one of the outer planets and that liberates a whole bunch of material into the atmosphere, maybe a large, uh, like a KT impactor, the one that, you know, wiped out the dinosaurs. That kind of material being ejected from the planet would then maybe take a thousand years to uh, travel between those planets uh, and then land... On another planet, and potentially seeded with life,
0: and a thousand years sounds like, a, sounds long like a long time,
1: long. but it's actually quite
0: short when you think about orbital timescales. And in our solar system, I think it probably takes millions of years yeah, to transfer. I
1: think ten thousand between Mars okay. and Earth. I might be wrong on that, and I can definitely be corrected. But yeah, it's, it's definitely at least one order of magnitude greater for the Earth. And even so, I think. There are some maybe some controversial studies that said it is possible if we have those bacterial organisms maybe at great depth in the material and the rock or in the ice and it's protected from the vacuum and it's protected from the radiation we basically have to have a lot of things going right and um, we'll probably end up with a probability of of life being uh, seeded onto another planet and it's very very low for the transport in our solar system. However, in the Trappist system, it seems like you can just move material around there really, really quickly. So while it's just B that we're focusing on in the Exocup, I think that system itself would make a great series arc, just exploring that system itself. <laughs> yeah, so it, much it reminds
0: me of, for instance, what Darwin discovered on the Galapagos Islands with the different variations of mm. species uh, on each of those islands, leading him to posit his theory of evolution. Something very similar could be investigated on the TRAPPIST systems if panspermia had happened, and you can sort of trace back the origin of all of those species
1: to one world. Yeah, perhaps. Or maybe it's just impossible to do so if there's been such a a mixing of materials in that system Mm. itself. And I should stress that we have no current evidence that this actually happens. So being able to test it in a natural laboratory, which is basically the TRAPPIST-1 system, would be fantastic. And any way we could get there, (laughs) even in our imaginations, I'd be fine with.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me on Strange New Worlds. Absolute pleasure. Trappist 1B is a fantastic pick for ExoCup 2019. And before I forget, go vote! It is your civic duty. Just log on to Twitter and follow ExoCast. That's XO underscore cast. At the same time, might as well follow Andrew Rushby at Andrew Rushby, and myself at MikeY. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. But anyway, back to Trappist-1B, it would actually be kind of awkward to put that in Star Trek now that I think about it. And the reason being we will probably know within the next few years, if not, then probably the next few decades, what that planet is actually like. You see, the Trappist system is so alluring because it's just on the edge of our telescopic capabilities to actually assess those tiny Earth-sized worlds for their potential for life as we know it, and just what they're like in general. And that's why the TRAPPIST system is such a cool system, but I also think it means that whatever prediction that Star Trek might make about this system in particular could be refuted by upcoming telescopes that are being built at this very moment. So better to just wait and see what they're really like and then put them in Star Trek, right? In the show notes this week, I have links to one, the Trek FM episode where Elise Cuts and I spoke about panspermia in general, referencing the expedited nature of such a mechanism in the Trappist-1 system, and two, Dr. Andrew Rushby's open access paper Habitability: A Review. And once again, if you want to hear more of Andrew talking about science in his spectacular South African accent, please check out Exocast, your one-stop shop for all the latest exoplanetary news. Until next time, see you out there.